And I don't say that as the chief product officer of a company. I say that as someone looking at the broader landscape of needs, which is this mental health crisis does not go away as the pandemic situation lessens. A company might desire a values-based transition to being both more innovation-friendly as well as more customer-centric and can like look at like, hey, look, we hired a chief product officer, so check mark done, versus seeing that that is really planting a signal flag to the organization and to the world that you have an intent to change. everyone, welcome. I'm Mariana Almeida, and this is the McKinsey Talks directly from this McKinsey studio in Sao Paulo. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, the topics of well-being and mental health have become even more central in the lives of people and the routine of companies. In search of alternatives to relieve stress, many users have turned to platforms and apps that help them meditate, relax, or focus. Today, we talk about customer centricity and product leadership at Headspace, the largest and most successful platform for mental health. Our guest is Leslie Witt, Chief Product and Design Officer of Headspace Health, connected directly from the Silicon Valley. Hello, Leslie. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. Great. Welcome. This is the fifth episode of our customer-centric growth series in which we talk to some of the world's most influential product leaders in different industries. The series is hosted by Fabricio Duor, partner at McKinsey and leader of product design and customer experience in Latin America. Welcome, Fabrizio. It's such a pleasure to have you here again with us. Likewise, likewise. It's great to be here. Um, and I think especially today with Leslie, a uh, former colleague from IDEO, um, and, uh, you know, leading product and design in a, in a product that I actually use myself. Uh, so it's a, it's a, you know, it's a pleasure to see that as well. And I think um, all in all, also to you know, shed some light into world-class you know, product-led organizations and, and as the topic grows and it becomes more important. Great, so let's get started. Let's get started. So uh, you know, to, to get going, uh, Leslie, you know, this is a question we're asking all our, our interviewees, um, which is what's your favorite product right now? <laughs> uh, great question. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna give you two. I'm gonna cheat just a little bit. Uh, but my favorite digital product right now is uh, shared by many around the world, which is Wordle. My entire family uh, jumped on the Wordle bus and is obsessed with its habit formation, virality, sharing capabilities, um, accessibility. And I think for me, when I, when I look at like, what are the attributes of a high quality, particularly digital product, the fact that it's intuitive, that it's inclusive, that it's effective and that it's delightful are like the attributes that I always like judge my own work through and Wordle, which is, you know, just this like simple blank five by six grid with two color codes and the ability to share uh, it really hits all those marks. And you see that in the fact that my entire crew who span the age from 84 to 10 uh, are, are hooked. So Wordle's my top digital product of the moment. And you, I would also say that the joy of copycatism is one of those ways that you can understand if your product is successful and it has spawned just an entire industry of 
of doles, the world doles, the core doles, the cock tortles, and you know, more to come. Uh, but but if I if I actually think like what is my most durable favorite product, I'm an obsessive compulsive gardener. And my favorite product is the Haas copper watering can. You know, it's decades, if not over a hundred years old. The design hasn't changed. It's beautiful. It's sustainable. Uh, and it reminds me permanently that I have this great honor and responsibility to get to care for the plants. Very cool. Very cool. And I, I, there, there's something fascinating about simple products, right? And how they can multiply into a different ways of usage and all that. So that's a great example. And I think also to, you know, just want to understand a little bit more about your background. Like where, what was your career, where, you know, what the places you've been through and, and that led you into the role you are now? How much time do we have? No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, you know, I, I think of my career in chapters and I'd say I'm on chapter four. Uh, but my, I started my career with 10 years spent as an architect uh, both acquiring my degrees and practicing it as an architect only, you know, to hit this moment. What, uh, did, are you also an architect by training? No, I'm an architect by passion. I, I will be an architect. Ah, yes. And, and so am I still, <laughs> but I have to say, I'm glad I'm not one by profession. And what I discovered was that my passion for architecture and the academic practice of our architecting, just very expansive in nature, just was not met at all, particularly in the US, by the actual practice of being an architect. And um, while I still have incredible respect for the profession and those that practice it, it turned out that 10 years in, I realized it was really not for me. And I had this like crisis of conscience and of future because I'd been on this narrow, narrow, like very specific professional path. And I hit my late twenties and realized I want it off. And thankfully it was like right at that moment, this was 2005 that I'd met my husband. We were moving out to the West coast and he said, well, you know what? I think you'd actually love this place called IDEO. And because I'd been so narrow focused on architecture IDEO was completely off my radar. And I think my first response back to him was like, uh, like they must be awful architects. I've never even heard of them. And he was like, they're not architects. It's a design firm. Uh, and it's actually a kind of famous design firm. And thankfully through, you know, I'd say like good part serendipity and very light part strategy. I ended up two months later joining IDEO in their burgeoning smart space practice. So kind of taking my architecture skills and applying them in the expanded field. And that next almost 10 years, I was at IDEO for over nine years. I really describe as like being reoxygenated. All the things that I thought were possible and true um, from an academic perch and from a passion for architecture and the kind of cultural relevance it holds, strategic, systemic, actually ended up coming true in terms of the application of design thinking, that combination of deep human understanding meets experimentation, creativity, and, and the rigor of evolution. And, uh, you know, it was at a time where IDEA was being asked to answer more and more questions. And some of the questions that kept appealing to me were those in the financial space, really looking at how do we evolve money services to better meet people's needs and actually drive positive outcomes. And so I got to a point at IDEO where I felt like I was no longer learning as much as I could and that I could 
have more positive impact stepping into the corporate environment. And so I jump to my next chapter. We're on chapter three here for those following along at home. Uh, and I joined the fintech company Intuit to lead all of the development of products and services within their small business and self-employed space. And for me, this was just an incredible expansion of really understanding how to connect innovation strategy to business goals and business outcomes. Um, I ended up leading a lot of our entrepreneurship efforts and also learning like where organic growth comes to play, where inorganic growth comes in and how to drive that connection between business strategy, business outcomes and product evolution, uh, which really led me to where I am now, which is, you know, courtesy of COVID, I came out of the social momentum of work, you know, kind of came like many of us right into my very living room and stared at myself all day on the screen and realized that much like my chapter close at IDEO, I felt like my learning had started to stall out. And that while the financial space still has, you know, many problems yet to be solved, that my contribution to that space was largely done and that there were other problems that felt more pressing for me to kind of apply that lens of customer understanding meets technical and product and design acumen and to drive change in those spaces. So picked amongst a very small few kind of democracy and civil society, education and mental health, and just realized that where I wanted to write my next chapter was in the mental health space. Great. So speaking of mental health, can you tell us a, li a little bit about Headspace and your role there? Yeah, absolutely. So Headspace is now Headspace Health, and that reflects uh, the merger that we engaged in last fall, bringing the strength of historic Headspace, which is really a meditation and mindfulness platform. And I'll talk a little bit later, you know, kind of in depth about that with the telecoaching, teletherapy, and telepsychiatry capabilities of Ginger. And what that allows us to be is really the most comprehensive and accessible mental health and wellness platform that's available. Um, in terms of my role, I'm the chief product and design officer. And that means that I have the privilege of overseeing like a really motley crew of folks whose unifier is that they're all oriented towards translating customer need and understanding into our core product experiences, our content experiences, and our human services in order to drive incredible outcomes. So product managers, product designers, a really robust brand and creative team, a whole crew of content folks who really bring to life all of our multimedia, both on and off platform content. Uh, and last but not least, a science team. And this is, you know, uh, people with backgrounds in behavioral psychology, clinical psychology, um, and a lot of the kind of evaluative research that helps us understand how to drive healthy habit formation, as well as to um, continuously improve the efficacy of our products and services. Yeah, I want to I follow up on this, um, on the organizational perspective and the breadth of the role of leading product and design. And I want to talk of two things. One, product and design and how these things play together and how, you know, um, what's the role of design within product. And also uh, to understand what are, like, are all those capabilities that you mentioned, like science, data, is all within product and how they interact with each other. Yeah, that's a meaty question. Um, 
I'll, I'll start and then like, feel free to interrupt me. Um, you know, first of all, I come to being a chief product officer vis-a-vis being a chief design officer. And so the dimension of design, which I think really has that translational capability of um, harnessing empathy and insight and making it into something real and touchable and palpable is a very unique skill set, um, both, both deep craft as well as deep analysis and always very premised on um, kind of a research core. Uh, you know, I, I hold that to be of incredible relevance. And as I've shared with you in the past, uh, have always advocated successfully that design have an equal seat at the table and not be uh, a function that reports into product or into engineering as it is in a, a wide variety of other organizations. Um, I have also always advocated that it is the seat of um, product innovation. And so have had historically responsibility for that kind of horizon level exploration that can lead into, you know, an organic growth funnel, but also directly into corporate strategy and um, M&A activities. That had me having a pretty strong foothold, you know, an interpretation of the design charter that, you know, smells like product right, that starts to talk in a very visceral way around prioritization, around um, expense and commercial commits. And so as the aperture expanded in terms of the relevance of a growth strategy to our connected product strategy, it was a very natural evolution to take direct product ownership, both of kind of run the business product as well as growth levers. Which means also commercial responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, I think from that lens, what I try to do is ensure that my staff is a microcosm of the, the very same kind of equal footing table, uh, both in terms of level as well as in uh, influence, where we're able to really hear the perspectives of the science leader, of the design leader, and of the product managers all at the same level footing so that there's shared understanding as well as shared decision making. Something that um, I'm noticing a lot in the market and uh, in, within my clients is that there is, uh, you know, there's a group of companies that are, um, you know, looking into how technology companies have um, done that and figured that out right through the, the role of the, the chief product officer, um, you know, in different contexts, right? And in, in having more connection with design and, and all that, but, all, but having this function, right, of the, the, the CPO. Whereas there's a lot of companies they're struggling with um, how to put together the organization, right? And, and I think that's what I was asking you about the commercial responsibility, because what I see a lot is this mix up of, no, 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 maybe uh, I will leave the commercial responsibility in a business unit and I will, leave, uh, and I will create a, a chief product officer function, um, which at in the end of the day, you know, it becomes incomplete, right? Because you don't have the visibility and the growth perspective and the commercial perspective within the same person. Well, and I, I think it, you know, and so I, I don't also want to overstate the case. I think that when it comes to actually like who who's accountable to deliver X metric, um, the reality is that in a lot of cases, particularly as it comes to commercial commits, there's shared responsibility. And so when it comes to our commercial product, I, I look very much at kind of the like, once you show up at any one of our channel doorsteps, like 
how is my team driving that overall conversion, engagement, retention, right? And so those have very, very real commercial outcomes to them. And, you know, I'd say auxiliarily from a product-led perspective, how are we fueling growth through sharing, through virality, through gifting, right? Like what are the enablers that we have um, more control over that can actually help drive business outcomes? But when it comes to, you know, we, we have a multi-channel uh, company, uh, when it comes to our enterprise business, to our health payer business, that's, you know, the making and securing of those relationships is very much on the sales team and the go-to-market teams. Uh, when it comes to our brand spend and our performance marketing distribution, that's very much on the marketing teams. And so I think having a C-staff who fundamentally sees themselves as um collaboratively responsible for outcomes is essential because um, the product leader cannot do it alone unless we're talking about a very small company. Um, but then again, not none of those other leaders can either. Does Headspace use product-led growth uh, approaches as well, or is it more focused on, uh, let's say, um, marketing-driven commercial distribution? Yeah, it's really a hybrid. So um, I'd say like our most effective product-led growth so far has come through our off-platform um, content partnerships. And so, uh, you know, just about a year and a half ago, my team partnered with Netflix to bring uh, three series to life on Netflix. And that kind of product and content-led growth has been one of our most effective drivers of all time in driving awareness and interest to actually then sign up for the core product. We're currently working on a number of features that are, you know, in a more tactical and mechanical way, product-led growth, meaning the ability to share, to engage in community-based spread, um, but have always really relied on a brand and content-based um, pull and awareness to actually drive visitorship to the product and then, you know, kind of fuel the same thing on, on and off again. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. One thing that, that I wanted to discuss with you is um, the role of a CPO. I see a lot of companies uh, looking into having, you know, a, a chief product officer because it's a way of becoming more customer-centric. Um, we've heard through these conversations also other examples of uh, the CPO being that person that um, funnels the energy and funnels the, the initiatives towards the customer, right? And, and kind of to deliver something which, you know, having the product as the most important aspect, right, of, of what the company does, uh, which makes a lot of sense, right? Um, and obviously because of that, we see, uh, and I actually was looking at the numbers for it, there's a growth of 40% uh, in the title of, of um, uh, chief product officer you know, from last year to this year. Um, so this, it's actually you know a growing. There's a trend in having a CPO. Um, what is the role of the CPO? Like what it entails in your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I I see it in a few buckets, um, and and in a way they they track a life cycle of development. One is to set a compelling vision for the company that helps outline where we're going, um, you know, kind of orient the troops towards that level of capability and possibility and plants the seeds of um, durable advantage within the core crew. The next is to really um, focus on prioritization, which is amongst the range of things that we might be able to do that would deliver on that promise. What are the ones we're going to prioritize now and why? And to help drive, you know, kind of 
the processes and alignment that's necessarily to deliver. And then the third one is, is really about always assessing um, efficacy, which is how, how did we do, what attributes of quality were delivered, what attributes of customer promise were delivered, and how do we siphon that back in to a continuous improvement lens, as well as something that both applies and tests our strategy. And uh, do you think this function has matured in the market and organizations? Why? Yeah, I mean, I think it's in, it's in a growth phase, right? As Fabrizio was talking about, the expansion of the title is substantial. And with that, I think there's a fair amount of flexibility in the term. You know, I would point out that that's true as well within a lot of the more historic crews, right? You have wild divergences within what a chief people officer is responsible for. Um, you have pretty broad swath difference in terms of what a chief marketing officer is, even though those are um, far more longstanding roles. And I think with the chief people officer, or sorry, with the chief product officer, it's going to be incredibly responsive to the nature of the business. It might bend more operational in some, it might be more um, in a company that's reached its maturity about um, kind of marshalling of resources and incremental improvement in another. And, you know, while, you know, in the tech idiom, it more likely smells like um, an innovation role that's more tightly partnered with corporate strategy. Even if uh, the guests that we have here, we have different perspectives. Mm -hmm. So something that is seen differently. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's part of the how um, the market is maturing, right? And how the function is maturing as well. Because I think it's also uh, fairly new, right, to to have a CPO. I think it's um, it's probably, you know, obviously, this usually starts in the West Coast in the U.S. And then it spreads to different parts of the world. But I think it's also about the maturity of uh, of the function kind of, you know, going a long time. Yeah, and I, I will say this, which is I think it can be a vanity role. And I, same thing I would say if you were talking about the role of chief design officer, which is a company might desire um, a values-based transition to being, um, you know, both more innovation-friendly as well as more customer-centric and can like look at like, hey, look, we hired a chief product officer, so check mark done, versus seeing that that is really um, planting a signal flag to the organization and to the world that you have an intent to change and that equipping that person with decision-making um, capabilities um, and with the investment needed is critical to ensuring that that doesn't just end up being, you know, more of a kind of puppet role versus something that actually drives true impact. Which I think goes back to what we we're talking about before, which is what are the responsibilities of that function, right? Because if the responsibility and this is what I see a lot, and maybe I think you capture it in, in a perfect way, like having it like a vanity role, um, it doesn't add a lot. It actually creates a lot of frustration in companies because that person wouldn't be able to have, for example, to make business decisions, right? Or, or decisions that will actually influence massively the business. Because at the end of the day, obviously, if you have the product leadership, you're going to have some sort of impact because you're, you know, you're in direct contact with the customer. Um, but what I see um, in a lot of um, you know, forward-thinking organizations is actually bringing business units within product and having the, kind of the accountability through like, activation, engagement, other business uh, growth metrics right, within that, that role. Totally. And you know, the only thing I'd add there, Fabrizio, is I think a lot of times organizations are attempting to shift from being sales-led to being product-led. 
And that's a, it's a really hard transition, right? Um, and it doesn't suddenly mean that the sales organization isn't important if they don't bring incredible both competitive insights as well as um, customer and client insights to the table. But it by nature means that they are not setting the roadmap, right? And that transition of saying like, our priorities are not established, particularly in a business that's more enterprise oriented by the next client's requirements, but that we actually have um, a durable strategy that has its own trajectory and you are selling that. And that the product itself has inherent growth levers within it or will, and that that will create deeper sustainability for all of us. And it requires, you know, habit change as well as um, aligned beliefs. Yeah, I, I can even take that to another level, which I, I, I'm seeing a lot, which is this shifting mindset from a sales-led mindset to a product-led mindset. You actually change, you, you tend to become much more customer-centric. Uh, and also, you tend to pay much more attention to the product itself. Because I think a lot of times uh, when you have kind of very sales-minded right, um, types of organizations, um, it tends to have that mindset of um, taking uh, taking notes of like you know um, features or you know specs from directly and not thinking through like what does it mean in the larger context of things like what's a roadmap and having the type of intentionality right of where you're going, uh, but also less customer centric really view right of what are you doing right what like and, and putting the product underneath and kind of like putting down the product and focusing too much on like, you know, let's just put all the effort in, you know, cost of acquisition, let's put a lot of money in like acquiring customers and not thinking through like, what's the quality of the product. That's why I was asking about the product-led growth because it's such a natural movement if you have a great product, right? Because people are gonna talk to other people. <laughs> totally, well, and, and I think that, you know, to give fair due to sales-led organizations, there's a dimension of customer centrism, right? Like understanding your client's desires, and needs and being able to meet to that. I think that the some of the inherent differences though are that product customer centrism really focuses more on a job to be done. What's the why behind why they purchased? And how do I ensure that I am delivering on that why so that they want to stay with me? It has just that longer duration cycle. So they want to advocate for me and share that they actually recommend this to others and that some of the rationale as to why you're seeing this shift more broadly is that business model, um, particularly in tech, tends to look more like I have to care because my cost of acquisition is so high that if I can't actually add to longer lifetime value, if I can't retain you, engage you, um, then I'm not actually going to fulfill the core promise of this product. And so, you know, a transactional business model makes a ton of sense to have more of a sales or marketing-led organization. But as it becomes more about engagement or retention, that's just simply an unsustainable way to acquire and deliver. Before jumping, I, I want to go back into the organization and, and, and talent uh, conversation, but just to complement what you're saying, in, in different industries, a lot of uh, what we're seeing is that it is becoming software as a service. Right, it is becoming like banking is becoming software as a service. Um, retail is becoming software as a service, and there's a lot of shift in, into becoming. It's in that logic of the CPO, of the product leadership, of the product-led growth. It makes so much sense, right? Because it's so similar to a technology, you know, driven uh, type companies. 
but I want to talk about the organization and talent a little bit because um, you mentioned that I, I got really curious about it. Um, I, I've seen different situations in in in, in product organizations, right? And, and most of the time, you, you know, the, the the product leader has the product organization, you know, as a re, as a responsibility. Um, and also, there's kind of dotted lines of technology engineers, for example, that participate in the product that kind of reports to the CTO. Um, and but you mentioned, uh, you know, scientists, data scientists, other profiles. Where do they sit in the organization? Do they sit all within product? Are they? Do they connect in the squads? Um, is it Scrum based, the work, or is it not? Like, just you know, give a little bit more flavor, please, on 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 the organizational side. Yeah, and I, I think there's no universal answer. Like, period. And you know, I'm a big believer in the maxim of structure follows strategy, and that with that, you'll never achieve like the ultimate ideal. Uh, because the ideal is always going to need to ramp and shift depending on what it is you're actually trying to achieve. Um, now that said, I would say like for, for our own journey, uh, one of the reasons that the science team actually sits in my team is that we realized that having it separate from product uh, really led us to an underutilization of those capabilities across that continuum that I was talking about in terms of product responsibility from strategy to prioritization to evaluative. And that we were harnessing the power of the science team purely from an evaluative capacity. And then in a more kind of like, you know, relationship driven um, versus responsibility driven way as um, expert consultants. So we were, we were under leveraging each other. And that bringing the um, the team into the fold ensured that that like structural collaboration was built in to how we work. And then we have mapped particularly the behavioral scientists into directly into our squad structure. Um, I'm going to use this as like just a little minute to give my stump speech, which is, you know, we're in a transition right now with how we work hand in hand with our data science team, which for us reports through um, through our technology organization, I think makes a lot of sense because we have a deep reliance on building out the data engineering capabilities to empower the data science uh, kind of ML and AI algorithmic moves. But what, what I've seen at past companies and we're, we're certainly in our own transition is that that team has placed a high premium on their own autonomy. And I actually don't believe, um, even in very large organizations, in the role of autonomy as a sustainable way to drive change. Because what it ends up usually doing, and I'd say it certainly is in our case, um, is that there's a lot of under-leveraged, really interesting experiments, but that are disconnected enough from core strategy that they aren't going to be prioritized to scale within the kind of regular running roadmap. And it leads to mutual frustration, right? There's this sense of like, well, you all aren't harnessing the power of what we're potentially bringing to life, which is true. And then a frustration from the product side of you're working on something that is actually not what I am prioritized, which is also true. And so I think the exchange that happens organizationally is giving up um, a little of the flexibility of an imagined autonomy in order to actually have outsized impact. So there's also this role of orchestrating all that and kind of giving a, a direction to that. Um, and, and the second part of this is talent, people. Like, where do you find 
you know, we're, uh, from my perspective and what I see in the market, I think not only here, but I think in other places, is just really hard to find great people. It's just, uh, you know, especially you're talking about technology, about design, data science. What do you hire for? And uh, how do you, you know, retain talent? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would say hiring, retaining and growing great talent is the number one job of the senior leadership organization to craft a brand and a culture and a process and structured environment where that's possible is like the number one job above and beyond the kind of business results and, and strategy. Because without it, there is no sustainable path forward. And I think people are feeling that very viscerally in the world of right now. We have a huge benefit, which is that we have um, a highly known and desirable brand that is working on a problem that the world now sees and cares a lot about, in particular, um, younger people, those kind of new college grads just coming out of bachelor's programs, master's programs, it's on their radar is something that they would like to make part of their life's mission. And so we don't have a pipeline challenge. Like when I post a role, it's sometimes it's sometimes almost the opposite. And I think this makes me think back to the heyday years of IDEO where people like everyone applies, you know, I'll post a role in 1300 applicants. And so in some ways, the challenge is more about how do you, with a lens towards diversity, equity, inclusion, actually like look through those applications in any way that gives fair shot at your evaluation criteria and brings the right candidates into the hopper. So, you know, we are quite lucky in that way. Um, but then, you know, that certainly isn't job done. And so making sure that um, you're able, and this is harder in a remote world, to put the culture that you've crafted on display for the candidate to mutually figure out if the role and the place, um, and I mean place in, you know, the kind of little p version are a good fit. And if you have the capacity um, from a direct leadership perspective, but also from an organizational growth perspective mm -hmm. to foster that person's growth internally. Great. And going back to the product, I would like to know the role that Headspace played in people's lives during the pandemic. And was it an opportunity to improve the product? Totally. Um, you know, we saw, as did others in the um, mental health and well-being space, just a massive surge of need and interest. And, you know, some of that, we ended up making our product free, uh, I think, second week of the pandemic to anyone who was unemployed. We'd always been free to educators. And, you know, we're, we're trying to expand both the social impact as well as awareness role. And, you know, we, we saw a very heavy uptick. We also saw the same in terms of employer interest in including, uh, you know, a mental well-being tool as part of their offering to their employees. So massive growth from the enterprise channels. Um, but I think the more interesting part of what we saw during the pandemic was that people were coming to us, like a large number with like a very vague sense that we could help. You know, they weren't heavily acquainted with meditation. They'd heard of it. Um, they weren't necessarily looking to develop a practice. What they were looking for was to feel better, right? They were in acute states of need with just um, uncontrollable stress, very high levels of anxiety, acute levels of depression. And what we realized was that we more or less had an ethical responsibility to expand our services. That, you know, the very real 
health benefits that can be delivered by having a meditation practice that can be delivered through learning the tools of breathing were inadequate to meet those needs. And that what we were seeing was that more or less people were asking us to be this front door to care, which is how we really think of our service now, where we can use that inviting brand, that de-stigmatized access to um, content, the kind of preventive infrastructure to then help assess how you're doing. And if you're in a need where you need to you know, be connected to therapeutic services, to psychiatric services, that we provide that on-ramp to do so you know, quickly and, and with ease. Super, super interesting. I'm thinking about how organizations changed like through this period of time. Um, and also um, how people started to pay more, more attention companies pay more attention uh, to mental health, like through the pandemic, right? Um, and, uh, and, and we know, and we discussed a little bit about that, like, you know, adolescents, for example, you know, it's a major crisis going on. Uh, I think I just wanna, you know, cause I think that, that it has a, a connection with the product, but also kind of from a larger perspective, um, what are you seeing as the kind of challenges moving forward? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a great question. You know, first of all, I would say that the pandemic shone a light on a crisis that was already here. So when you look at a lot of the stats that are jaw dropping around like 30% of adults experiencing in the US like clinical levels of anxiety and depression, those ramped during COVID, but those stats are pre-COVID stats. And um, same thing, when you look at the ramp in adolescent suicidality and adolescent, um, you know, kind of mental health disorders, it, that, that ramp was, was on the uptick. And COVID, yes, was an accelerant, but I think positively what it did was it took something that wasn't in the public discourse and squarely made it part of the public discourse, particularly if you're thinking about like HR communities and employers looking at their broader um, responsibility to take care of their employee populations. And so, you know, we did, as, as I mentioned, like we saw a really substantial uptick in terms of enterprise interest in mental health services and mental well-being services during the pandemic. I think we do have some indicators. We, we, run, we run a very comprehensive annual survey and it, the results really just came in, I think two weeks ago from our most recent one, which is that employees still put mental health services as like consistently one of their top two desires and needs. What we're seeing is some decrease in terms of uh, enterprise focus. And I think that's a mistake. And I don't say that as the chief product officer of a company, I say that as someone looking at the broader landscape of needs, which is this mental health crisis does not go away as the pandemic situation lessens. One, there's gonna be a long tail of trauma, um, both for those who directly lost folks and just out of the situational norms and the isolation that were the pandemic. And what it has permanently surfaced is that as a society, we have to treat mental health as health and levy the right level of attention and services toward it. Thanks. Unfortunately, we are reaching down the end of our session. So you have time for one quick question. <laughs> one quick question. I think the, you know, Headspace is, is an incredible product. Uh, it's growing a lot. I think it's also, uh, it's very, very useful. And, and as we all you know, discuss here, it's very to the core of, of, uh, of human beings. Um, 
two, um, and, and you have an amazing, you know, multidisciplinary product organization. So I think uh, I just want to, you know, get your advice for um, other product leaders uh, or companies that are going through that transition to build their product organization um, that have, uh, you know, a CPO just as a recent new function. Uh, wh what do you recommend to those companies? Like where to start or maybe, you know, some tip? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the one I gave previously, which is hiring a CPO is not a job done. It's the, it's the start of the journey. I think tops down support is essential. And what that means is um, creating a reality where that person is an empowered decision maker um, and funding those teams with the right groups, whether that's a restructuring and a movement of other disciplines that exist into the group, or it might even be the recognition that roles like, say, user research or evaluative research don't yet exist. And allowing that that person will need um, both the, the monetary support, but also like the spiritual support of the organization to actually drive the efficacy, which you'd like them to. Super. Can't agree more. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Leslie. And thank you very much, Fabricio, both of you, to, for being here with us, talking about this fascinating subject. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It was a, a great way to spend a morning. And um, I hope that I was able to share a few nuggets that are relevant to your listeners. A lot. Thank, thank you very much, Leslie. The Customer-Centric Growth Series will be published as a McKinsey Talks video and podcast on YouTube and Spotify but also as short articles on mckinsey.com.br. If you'd like to know more about product-led organizations, send an email to mckinsey-talks at mckinsey.com. I would also like to thank all of you who are watching us on video or listening to us on podcast. Go to mckinseytalks.com for a full agenda on McKinsey Talks. There you can also check out this episode and earlier ones on video or podcast. That's it. Thank you very much and see you next time.